Welcome, welcome everybody. My name is Aubrey and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the Sanford School. Today, my wonderful guest is Brittany Alexander. Brittany has been a powerhouse in the school since she started here and she has had experience doing research, teaching, and being a student leader when she served as the president of the Graduate Student Association. Brittany's work focuses on the study of hope, something that, you know, in the wake of 2020, I think we could all use a little bit more of. Brittany, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So the podcast pretty much starts and ends the same way every time. I start by asking you three rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just gonna be icebreakers to get to know you a little bit better on a surface level. And then the ending ones are to get little quick bites of your personal philosophy. The whole point is just to try to answer them on the fly and you know quickly in about a sentence. Does that sound okay? Sounds good. Perfect. So my first question for you is, what meal of the day is your favorite? Breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Breakfast and breakfast any time of day. I'm a big breakfast food for dinner kind of person too. So I feel that. Okay. So question number two, what was your first pet's name? Chester was a dog that I had when I was about six months old. What kind of dog? You know, I don't know. He chewed a hole in the wall after I was born, very not uh, kid friendly. So he went to another family shortly after, but then I had another dog for the main part of my childhood named Cody. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Okay. So the last question is what was the first thing you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were a little kid? I wanted to be a mom and my mom actually just sent me this picture that I colored where I said I wanted to have eight kids. So I was ambitious. Well, time to get started, right? So Apparently. you're on right now. So <laughs> gotta get going on that. <laughs> so Brittany, I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I think you are just one of my favorite people that I've met. You have such a way of making anyone who you talk to feel so warmed and so welcomed and you just give people hope which I think makes it just amazing that that's what you study. So that is so kind of you to say, Aubrey, and I feel the same way about you. Oh, thank you. So can you talk to me a little bit about what hope is anyway, and why is it important that we have hope? Well, that is a question that people have been trying to answer for probably forever, but in the scientific realm and religious studies realm for the last like 80 years. Um, so I'll give you like a tiny snippet of background on why I study hope. And then I'll tell you kind of how I've approached it in my research and the way that kind of the Hope Center does. Um, so I'm really interested in hope because my work and my career goals are to work towards social justice and education. And so um, there are these two concepts, uh, one mainly being pedagogy as the practice of freedom, which is like Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks. And so they talk about education for liberation and education as the practice of freedom being these um, kind of un, un, like touchable, it's hard to wrap your mind around, but these concepts where education can really transform people's lives and be a tool for equity and social justice. And so to me, the, um, the way that hope comes into that is through their ideas of radical hope. And so hope is this uh, motivator and this underlying um, belief and system of thinking that helps you work towards a better, more equitable future. And so it's certainly not the only thing that we will need to get there, but it's a really important sustaining component and motivating component. And so those two um, pieces of it really feed into the way that I've studied it. So as you can probably tell, that sounds very nebulous and hard to capture in a scientific measure from a social science perspective. And so um, the work of some of the cognitive psychologists really picked up hope uh, in the 80s and 90s. And so they really define hope, and this is Rick Snyder's work, 
um, they define hope as agency and pathways thinking. And so those are kind of the agency is, you know, the belief in yourself that you can achieve a goal and pathways are the way that you want to do that. Um, and so it's this really tangible, specific act and action oriented type construct that we've kind of taken this, I would say like magical and really hopeful and uh, construct that you can feel into something that you can think about and measure and tangibly work towards. Um, so I think it's really important both in terms of a broader sense of, of looking for a better future and then in this tangible way that in the work that I do looking at hope in schools is helping individuals um, giving them some tangible tools to be able to think through and process um, ways to achieve their goals. That's so interesting. So one of the questions that sort of comes to me from what you've just said is the relation between like hope and optimism. It sounds mm -hmm. to me, and maybe correct me on this, but optimism is sort of a part of hope where, um, you know, part of hope is this idea that I'm thinking about my future and I feel good about it. But then there's also this like action aspect to it where I also have to believe that I, you know, have the ability to get the future that I want. Is that right? Yes, you hit it spot on. Aubrey, you could be a hope researcher. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's it. So people have looked at, um, and there's actually a probably a need for some more social science work in this area, but some people have looked at it, looking at um, hope and optimism and trying to test and see if they are unique predictors of things like academic achievement and um, engagement and things like that. And they have found that hope is actually a better predictor of academic achievement over and above optimism. And some of the reasons that people think that is, and in, uh, in line with hope theory and what you were just saying is that optimism is more of a outlook on life. Um, and people kind of see it more as, I don't wanna say personality trait, um, but it, it's a lens. So it's believing that things are gonna be better, things, things can be good. Um, and that certainly is important. And like you were mentioning, hope is more of this personal agentic belief that I can be a change for my future or um, I have the pathways to achieve um, goals or achieve that better future. So it gives the person a little bit more of a sense of agency to um, have an impact on their desired outcome. Right, it sounds like educators are a really big aspect to helping empower students with the tools to enable them to have more hope, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so that, um, that's been a big component of my work with HOPE has been through this partnership that ASU has that has now evolved into the HOPE Center, but started out as a partnership between ASU and this uh, youth serving organization called Kids at HOPE. And so they are a national organization, actually international, I think now, um, but their goal is really to promote HOPE in kids um, and take a strengths-based approach to all kids. So the way that they do that is through mentoring. Um, and so that aspect of it, I was super interested in, in the education context, in the ways that teachers can kind of be that uh, intermediary and help facilitate students' own belief in themselves and work with them on, on their skills to like actually help tangibly achieve goals. Cause we always ask little kids when they're young, what do you want to be when you grow up? And people come up with these lofty things. I wanted to be a mom of eight kids. And, um, but how do you get there? And maybe we, you know, you don't have to worry about that big of a goal when you're five or whatever it is, but um, learning about how to take tangible steps towards your goals, I think is really powerful and, and helps give more of a sense of, sense of control and accomplishment when you, you get to achieve some of those goals. That's great. So 
I'd love to hear a little bit more about sort of your personal journey with hope. So, you know, do you think that you're a hopeful person? Have there been times in your life where maybe you didn't feel very hopeful or you felt hopeless even? And did you have people who helped to empower you? And did you feel that having hope helped you get through certain situations? Definitely. Um, yeah, those are, those are really great questions. I think in my own life, I, um, I think hope really came up for me. Well, I grew up really religious. And so, um, hope was a big part of the religious context and hope for the afterlife and things like that. And, um, it was really future oriented as well. So you're supposed to be focusing on focusing on heaven or things above or whatever. Um, and so, that I kind of have always had that like future oriented mindset, probably a little bit too much where I struggle with being present. So I'm working on that part now. Um, but for me, I um, had this experience in college where I was learning about structural inequity and like systemic racism and sexism and um, all of the isms, the all hooks is white supremacist, uh, capitalist patriarchy. And that was really hard. And I think especially that's hard for everyone to learn about, but I was very privileged and very privileged. And so um, that kind of shattered my worldview a little bit, seeing how um, people are not given the same opportunities and chances in life. And it was, it kind of sent me into a place of hopelessness a little bit. Um, and I think the things that gave me hope then were coming back to like black feminist theory actually. And this is how I knew I was interested in academics because I was uh, reading books about it uh, for some reason. Um, and so when I realized that people like Bell Hooks and Angela Davis and Audre Lorde, I realized that they were hopeful for our futures and they faced a lot more things than me. And so how could I not be hopeful for the future and um, working towards that. So I also had really good mentors and role models in my own personal life. So I had um, a really supportive cross country coach. I had two really supportive academic mentors who I was doing research with um, and then people in my personal life too. So that's actually something that I'm working on uh, and the HOPE team has been working on too is to try to understand the relationship between social support and HOPE. So some theorists have proposed that social support or trust is actually a component of hope and others think that it's um, something that's important to hope and is related to hope, but that they're separate constructs. So that's something that we're that's thinking so about. Yeah, that is so interesting to me because, you know, when I sort of reflect on my own personal life and I think about the times when I felt hopeless, it was really accompanied by a lot of sort of social isolation, perceived and actual, right? Like yeah. feeling like there was no one who understood me or saw me, that really made me added to my feelings of hopelessness. Whereas you know, when I did finally get people in my life where I felt like I was acknowledged and supported and loved, I started to have hope again. And I think that that, I, I don't know, at least to me, it's like reflecting That's on cool. that. It's like, oh yeah, social, social support, it would be so important to hope. That is so well said because that is, yeah, I've, I've definitely felt the same way a lot of times. And, um, I think, aspect of hope that you get from other people is really powerful. And then social support is just essential for everything that we do as humans. And, and it's easy to know that. And it's a different thing when you're isolated, perceived or really isolated um, and trying to figure out how to work through something like that is really tough. I also want to note that sometimes I think in, in the positive psych space, positive psychology space where we're focusing on these uh, human strengths, it can often come up that, you know, if you just hope hard enough, like you'll be okay and everything will be fine. And so I just want to acknowledge too that sometimes, you know, sitting with a feeling of hopelessness could be really um, important and beneficial, but it's also important to note when that's happening a lot. And if, if you might need, you know, other support too, or mental health support. 
like I personally have dealt with um, depression and anxiety and my family has a history of that. And so I think it's, it's a fine line and hard to know when you're feeling hopeless or you're really dealing with, you know, some mental health issues. So I think that's important to know if you're encountering that a lot, then that's maybe something to dig into deeper and seek out social support, maybe in a more professional sense. Yeah. I mean, I also have dealt with mental health issues for so much of my life, including depression and anxiety. And I really, it really resonated with me what you said about sometimes finding times where it's okay to sit with feelings of hopelessness, right? Like I do a lot of stuff in my personal mental health journey with mindfulness and self-compassion. And a lot of that is acknowledging moments where I feel like I'm in pain because so often it's like, you know, we don't want to put our hand on a hot stove. We don't want to be in pain at all. But when we can sit with our pain and acknowledge that this experience that I'm going through is hurting me, that actually is so much more helpful to the healing process than if we just try to, you know, close our eyes and pretend it's not happening. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's such a good way to describe it. Um, because that distinction for me too, between, between pain and suffering was so transformative because when you think about like pain is inevitable in life, Everyone will experience hard things and pain, some more than others, obviously with um, different structural components to it too. But I didn't ever make the connection mentally that by avoiding dealing with hard feelings, I might be increasing my suffering. Like I can, I can respond to pain in a lot of different ways and avoidance might be increasing my suffering rather than actually sitting with some of that and acknowledging it, like you said, because um, that is so important for healing. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by this idea of sort of hopelessness and the structural components that might add to an individual's lack of hope. Um, you know, I think particularly in 2020, right? Like we have not only the pandemic, which has exacerbated so many issues, but, you know, this year was also, there was a lot of light shed on particularly racial inequality in the United States. And I'm kind of curious from a hope researcher perspective, do we see in the literature that like individuals who may experience some of the isms that you described earlier, you know, sexism, racism, homophobia, et cetera. Do people who are experiencing more of those things have less hope? I'm so glad you asked that. So I think this is one of the things that um, the Hope Center and the, the folks that I work with, we've been struggling with because um, there was this really important transformation in the 90s, late 80s, 90s, um, where we were seeing kids as at risk. And so one of the big positives of seeing kids from a strengths-based perspective is being able to see them as at hope or um, for their strengths as opposed to being at risk. But um, it, it focuses on the individual, right? And so it kind of if you take it to its logical conclusion would lead you to believe that, okay, if you just hope hard enough, everything will be okay for you. And then we point to these individual all-stars who are the exceptions who have made it through these really challenging situations and say, oh, if we can just hope enough, we'll be like them, um, which is not true. And it, and it in fact can be harmful to portray those kinds of images as the remedy for structural inequity. And so um, what we've actually seen in some of the literature, and it's pretty limited at this point, there hasn't been a ton done. There's been, I mean, I'm sure you've run into this with your research. There's been staunch, not just um, an inability to acknowledge racism, but a staunch resistance to discussing it openly and honestly in um, psychology and a lot of different academic disciplines. But um, so we've run into that as well. So there's been a little bit of work where we've actually seen in, in, in some of my own measurement and variance research, I saw this too, where actually marginalized groups tended to report higher hope. And that was so interesting and confusing to me. So specifically, I found that girls were reporting higher hope than boys. And, and um, 
that Latino students were reporting higher hope than white students, and that was consistent with some of the previous literature as well. And so what I think might be going on there is that if you are an individual who's facing additional structural barriers to the goals that you wanna achieve, you have no choice but to be more hopeful. Otherwise, what, what, what future do you have? What's gonna happen? Um, and so I think I'm really trying to think through and reflect on what are the ways that we can make systems and structures and institutions more hopeful and invest in our kids so that the burden isn't fully on them to be hopeful enough that everything works out. Um, and actually in Ajima Olu's book, So You Wanna Talk About Race, she's, she's telling this story about her son and um, she talks about how she was raised with her parents who went through the civil rights um, movement and how she was raised with this idea, like you can do anything. Um, and so for her son, so she's a black woman and, and for her son, she was trying to reflect on why is he so angry? And she realized that she had parented him in a similar way to her own parents where she was raising him to think that he could do anything if he just worked hard enough and, um, you know, acknowledging structural issues too, but trying to give him this hope for a better future and, what was happening for her son in adolescence is he kept running into all these barriers and seeing that, you know, he was trying his hardest, he was being really hopeful and um, the world wasn't a place that was receptive to that. And so I think it's been, for me, a, a journey to think through how do we capture some of that in the science and in the study of hope? Um, but I think in the, in the application setting too, we have a responsibility to make our institutions more equitable and, and that in and of itself would I think contribute to hope. Oh, I completely agree with you, Brittany. I think you're making fantastic points here. It really is just such a delicate balance as a, I imagine as a parent or as a mentor to, you know, you want to empower the people in your life and you want to tell them that, you know, you can do whatever you set your mind to because you see so much potential in the individual in front of you. But, you know, it really sounds like what you're getting at is that, you know, it's not necessarily that that is like the worst mindset, right? But you also need to be acknowledging that, you know, you can do what you want to do. However, there are going to be these structural barriers that are in place that might keep you from doing those things as easily as other people. And that maybe if we acknowledge those barriers and that really requires more hands-on parenting and mentorship, right? Like then that might help like students and children feel less of that anger when they're hitting that wall. Is that kind of what you're, what you're picking up? Yeah, definitely. Um, so thinking about I'm thinking about how uh, when you're, well, I still feel this way, but especially when you're like an adolescent or a kid, you see yourself, you see the individual and you don't um, have the tools yet, whether that be developmentally or in your environment to think about the patterns that are happening. And so I putting myself in my high school self's shoes, like it feels so isolating when you run into different barriers, like when my parents had different rules for me than they had for my brothers or things like that, um, which are, you know, minor at the time. But if I don't have the language or the support or, or even just the ability to see these broader patterns of, oh, women are tended to treat, people tend to treat women this way and people tend to treat men that way. And people tend to think of gender in a binary um, it can be really isolating and it can feel like your fault as opposed to being related to structures. And if you feel like things are your fault, you're not going to be as hopeful. Yeah. Well, that really resonates with me because I had such similar experiences when I was an adolescent where, you know, there were these pressures placed on me and these expectations and these rules that simply weren't there for my younger brother. And I remember I would, I felt so angry and trying to even explain that to my parents with the language that was available to me at the time. And you know, sort of being perpetually met with this resistance, it was very hard. I think that that contributed 
a lot to my feelings of hopelessness. And really that it sort of enhanced my depression, right? Because I felt this experience of like, man, this thing is happening that I have no control over in my household and I can't see a future until what, three or four years when I finally get to leave, like. Right, yeah, that's so true because you're, you're both your sense of time when you're that age and actually the independence and real agency that you do have is so limited. Yeah. It really, yeah, could have an even more detrimental impact on hope where if you don't have the option to just move out or your parents, either you don't have the language or your parents aren't receptive to that language or to uh, the arguments that you're making when you're that age, it's really challenging. Yeah. It'd be even more harmful for hope. So what advice do you think you could Which give? Which is the good part. <laughs> so what advice do you think you could give to anyone who's listening, who is a parent, is a mentor, is working with younger people about how, how you think they can enhance their ability to foster hope in their students? And that has to do with, you know, whether those students are marginalized or even if they're not. Definitely. So I think the first thing is to start with yourself and take care of yourself first, because um, what we've been running into with a lot of the um, community-based work and the work that the Hope Center um, and our partners have been doing in schools is that you really need hopeful adults to teach hope to kids. Um, Kids are smart. They know if you're not hopeful. And also, you know, we need to be taking care of the caretakers and, and that can require outside support, but certainly um, taking care of yourself first. So I would say um, making sure that you are practicing your own skills to, to take care of yourself, whatever that looks like, or self-compassion. Um, and then when you are in a good space or even before you are, because you're gonna be working with kids, you know, the whole time if you're a parent or <laughs> if you're a teacher, I would say um, fostering future-oriented thinking can be really, really helpful. Um, teaching goals and goal setting can be really helpful. So um, I, I'm not remembering what the acronym stands for, but SMART goals, it's uh, short-term. Anyway, I can't remember, but if you Google SMART goals, that'll be helpful. Um, so things that are tangible and short-term that kids can achieve um, and that are measurable Um, so that they know if they've achieved their goal can be um, a tangible way to do it and help kids track their progress. So one of the things that um, Kids at Hope does that I just love is they ask kids to time travel and the parents or teachers can help them do this. And so what they do is um, they'll ask kids to envision their future in four different areas and it's um, academics and career, family, hobbies and recreation and community. And so usually we just ask kids about their goals for their career or for their family. Um, But so they ask kids to envision a positive future and what that would look like in each of those areas. So I think it's really beneficial to push kids to do this and ourselves to do this in terms of community and of hobbies and recreation because all four of those things are so important to well-being. And so they ask them to time travel to the future, imagine what that looks like, describe what that looks like, who's there, what you're doing, and then return to the present and think through, okay, what are some steps and ways that I can work towards achieving that goal? And then having the adult or the mentor check in with the kid and say, how's it going on your progress towards um, being an awesome dad or, you know, doing whatever it is that you want to be doing. So I think that's a fun exercise too that I I do for myself, but (laughs) that you could definitely do with uh, like a mentoring relationship too. Oh, I totally love that. That is something I've never heard of before, but I can see how helpful that would be because it's like, if you can actually imagine not just like a future for yourself as a professional, but a future for yourself as a fully fledged human being that would be so empowering. So that I'm just a little bit curious, Brittany. So you don't have to go through all four of your domains, but what, what do some of those goals look like for you in this exercise? 
Well, so I, the reason that I really latched onto this and can really relate to it is because I um, have always been, uh, a negative way to frame it would be non-committal. A, a positive way to frame it would be well-rounded. So <laughs> I'm not all or nothing. I love to have different aspects of myself and my life that I invest time into. And so that for me has taken the form of um, I was really invested in cross country and track when I did that. And so I still run and try to pursue, um, you know, smaller, but <laughs> different types of goals associated with my running. And then, so that's kind of my hobbies and recreation. And so I prioritize it and I make time for it. And sometimes I put it in my calendar if I'm really busy. Um, and then for my community, that's something I really I'm working on that I've been struggling to push myself with a little bit because I think I think of that as something for grown-ups to be doing and I forget that I'm a grown-up who should be doing that. So um trying to make more connections with um local organizations, I think is something that I really want to work on. But in the past year, how that has taken shape for me has been trying to volunteer on different um campaigns and volunteering my time on issues that I think are important. Um, so yeah, those are two of the areas that are not the career side that I think often gets the bulk of the time on that. Oh, I love that. I, that's really cool. I think that similarly to you, I, when I'm thinking about the goals that I have, you know, um, in terms of like hobbies, I started uh, fighting last year. I started doing Krav Maga and I totally fell in love with it. It's like, I was never the kind of person before that who, like, I always just sort of dreaded going to the gym. Like I was never, I never felt like good, just like going for a run. And it really made me think like, man, I guess I'm just not like an, an exercising person. But then I started going and and I was like, wow, it turns out I actually just love to hit things. And, <laughs> it's, and it's just been so that. cool how like that has really helped me become a more well-rounded person. I think for grad students, right? Like we get into this mindset where it's like, I feel like my entire life needs to be consumed by my grad school studies and my research and my classes and I don't know if you ever feel like this, but sometimes it feels like selfish to be doing things that are not grad school. And so for me, it's like being able to like cultivate a hobby that is so far removed from what I study has been so helpful to just like my overall mental well-being. So definitely. And because it helps you balance your identity, right? Or I don't want to project on you. For me, it helps me, me balance my identity. So if I'm, uh, my analyses are not working and I'm not making progress on this project, but I had a really good run that day, or I got to uh, volunteer with some organization that I love, that really helps fuel my sense of self-efficacy that I can still, you know, doing well in these other areas but I think it really helps protect kind of that sense of identity being really fully invested in one area which um you know it, it can be good and at certain times necessary like you're saying with grad school but having these other things to help keep you motivated and sustain you I think are really helpful for like preventing burnout too yeah, I just am so resistant and I really try to push back on this idea that as an academic, my entire life needs to be consumed by academia. And that's not to say that I don't love it. I really do love academia. I cherish the opportunity that I've been given to pursue this. Like, I truly love what I study. However, you know, <laughs> watch my future uh, employer uh, listen to me say this, but 
I, I don't want academia to be the end all be all of my entire life. I, you know, at the end of the day, I would like someone to say, oh yeah, Aubrey was a great academic, but I also want them to be able to say she was a great friend. She was a great mother, a great wife. Uh, she really knew how to punch things really well, like, uh, you know, stuff like that. And I don't know that that is always something that is encouraged in academic spaces, but I feel that, you know, I think our generation of academics are starting to be more cognizant of being like a fully formed human being. And I think that that's a great step towards, you know, preventing that burnout. Well, I think you make such a good point because the, the things that we are being, um, be successful in academia, I think we're being asked, our generation of scholars is being asked um, a lot a lot and, and to give up a lot to be able to pursue this kind of career path and job. And so it forces you to like to reckon with, okay, well, is it worth a, this specific job and doing really important work and being surrounded by amazing and brilliant colleagues? Um, is it worth giving up X, Y, Z? Because at the end of the day, we all have 24 hours in the day. Um, and so I think yeah, it is really encouraging to see people pushing back on that. Um, and to, and I think too, like learning from experiences of previous, you know, previous scholars and previous generations of scholars on what, what's working and what's not. I totally agree with you. I think there is a big culture of being workaholic. And if you are not working yourself to the bone, then you're not working hard enough. And so I've really struggled with that because personally, like, everything about me just like resists that. And so I almost, but I do almost feel like and watch my future employer listen to this too. Um, you have to talk that way. Otherwise you're perceived as not working hard enough. And so for me, care. like, or yeah, or they don't care. Like I ran my first year at ASU. So I was spending a lot of hours a week, probably 15 to 20 hours a week on track. And that if I had said that explicitly, it would have been unacceptable um, to a lot of people and probably has slowed me down a little bit, but I think it was well worth it. And so I, I don't know. I think it, it has pushed me to, to think about um, ways that I can uh, use some of the awesome flexibility that we have to support those other aspects of myself. Um, but I do certainly think that having more people being more accepting of it and willing to talk about it um, is hopefully helpful in changing some of the workaholic culture because <laughs> I think that it benefits everyone. It benefits our research. It benefits you know our work when we're not completely burnt out. And I think of some of my best ideas when I'm on runs, but that shouldn't have to be the reason. You know, like we're full humans, we should get to be full humans. And then if I happen to think of a great idea on a run, then that's great. Or if you happen to think of your dissertation while you're uh, doing Krav Maga, then that's awesome. But it's not the sole reason to do it. Yeah, I love this. I think this is sort of an indirect conversation about hope in grad school because, yes. you know, it is, so right. uh, I, you know, I really did like my, it was my second semester of my first year. I remember I had a week straight where I cried every day because I was just like, I, the imposter syndrome was just so strong for me at that time. I felt like I was just lost. I thought everyone around me was, I was just like, I, I mean, I had that false idea, right? That everyone around me has it all together and is so mm -hmm. smart and perfect. And I'm just like this loser who just stumbled here. And it's not true at all. I deserve to be in this program as much as you or anybody else, but mm -hmm. I just felt so hopeless and so imprisoned by it. And it wasn't until I focused on other aspects of my life and realized that I would much rather be a well-rounded person than a perfect academic that I was able to actually sort of find happiness again. That makes me so happy that you did that, but I'm sorry that it took like, <sighs> get into that space because it's so 
going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's so isolating, right? Like feeling like everyone else has it together and also everyone else is somehow working all day, nights and weekends. And that's not, uh, that might be fine for different phases of life, but that can't be sustainable for six years straight. It's just not. And yeah, so I think, but then when everyone else is, is talking like that is how they're living for me anyway, that was super, super hard to like disentangle. Okay. What is some of this people, you know, doing what they have to do in this culture and what's actually the sustainable reality. Um, and it's hard when it's hard when that's not explicit. A lot of it is so implicit. Um, I think that's really isolating because like you said, the imposter syndrome can really get to you. And then I just, yeah, for me anyway, I get just further isolated from there. Like once it starts, it's, it's all downhill. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to ask that was going to a bit more of a broader scope again, is that in this time of just 2020 in general, it's like almost a joke at this point, isn't it? Just how the year has been for people. What is something that has given you hope this year? Because for me, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my hope this year so that you can sort of think while I'm talking, but I, I think for me, like a lot of it has been realizing that my personal day-to-day happiness does not really do anything to decrease the net suffering in the world. Um, And by that, I mean that there are so many times where I feel that I can't have a good day because everything in the world, seems like it's just on fire. And so for me, realizing that, you know, I, it's okay for me to have joy in my daily life and to be, you know, proud of my own personal accomplishments, that that has really helped me have hope. I also have felt very empowered by a lot of work that I've seen people do this year. I have seen people in my own personal circle who have never spoken about certain issues suddenly become interested in them this year and not interested in any kind of like weird, like malicious kind of way, but just genuine curiosity. And I've seen, you know, what I think is actually brilliant discourse between people. And though that that doesn't happen at, you know, every single level, not every conversation is good. I will say that I have seen some conversations where people have acknowledged their privilege, where people have learned just things that they have never learned or had to learn before and accepted those messages with open arms. And those interactions that I've seen have really given me a lot of hope. Yeah. I, I love that. I think, um, to touch on the first point that you were talking about with kind of your own day to day versus what's going on in the world. I think this year to me has been a um, really good representation of the need for boundaries to keep ourselves, um, energized and hopeful and sane. And so when I think about, um, how to balance that because I've struggled with that too. So like personally, I care so much about about social justice broadly, but racial justice in education. And so when I think about um, the the work that I'm doing and trying to evaluate it as, is this going to make any sort of meaningful dent in this massive issue that I'm trying to, you know, work towards? And most of the time it's no, because uh, if we could fix it, we would have fixed it already. Um, but, but trying to keep up some personal boundaries and not letting the, what is it? Not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good I think has been really helpful in giving me hope this year. And then um, also what you were touching on, and I don't wanna to read too much into it, so I'll, I'll give my own example. Um, is that after after George Floyd's murder um, in the spring and being involved in some protests this summer, 
I've really found so much inspiration and hope in the in the movement that has been built by Black women and other people of color and the, the decades and years of organizing and uh, work that they have really put in to build this movement. And then finally, um, having my family. So this is a podcast. I'm a white woman and having my family um, be more willing to listen than they ever have been before and more willing to have difficult conversations um, has been really, really helpful to me. And I've been also learning to view it more as a journey. So um, that has been kind of a motivating factor that I think is really important when we think about hope is um, to see things as like drops in the bucket. So even if I don't change this person's mind today, this conversation is part of a larger, of their, of their experience, right? And so all I can do is hope that it um, sticks with them and, and that it builds on um, things that they're thinking about or maybe it leads to some change later on. So, oh, I wanted to, uh, I was looking up something because I wanted to read it. Um, because this is something that has been really cool this year to me to see. So we've had summer of racial justice protests, coronavirus, um, a, a wacky, wild political year. Um, and so uh, Brittany Pacchiati on Instagram. So she has been an organizer for Black Lives Matter. Her name is Brittany Packnett Cunningham. And she talks about disciplined hope. And so how she describes it is an honest assessment of the problem. So a lot of times hope, with hope we skip straight to the solution without acknowledging the problem. Um, and then the second part is an unrelenting belief that the problem can't be changed. So like you were saying that optimism piece of believing that the future can be better and then an undistracted pursuit of what's better. So I think that really hits on the need for accountability, um, but not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And so things like that and work by really amazing organizers and activists has been really inspiring and hopeful to me this year. I think that that was beautifully said, Brittany. I just wanna echo that, you know, I've also been so inspired to see just the work of activists and organizers this past year. And, you know, I always try to acknowledge that, you know, there is a history of people who came before me and so many of them are not named and not acknowledged. Um, you know, as a queer person, I always try to remind people that, you know, the first brick at Stonewall was thrown by a black trans woman, Marsha P. Johnson. And, you know, the rights that I have today are not from, you know, the typical picture of, you know, proponents of queer rights, which are typically handsome, white gay men who, you know, great for them too. There's nothing wrong with being a handsome white gay man, but, <laughs> you know, there has been a whole history of activists who came before them who were not, you know, quote unquote photogenic, or it, it was not as socially uh, acceptable to be an activist and they were doing that work. Yeah. So I just, that, I just wanted to echo that because I'm always so inspired to learn about history. So, yeah. That's such so, an important point. Yeah. Brittany, this has been just a wonderful conversation with you. I wanted to transition now into our last sort of rapid fire question session, uh, because this is just one of my favorite parts of the interview, because it really allows me and our listeners to get a view of the things that are important to you. And I just think it's so great to hear. So are you ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so question number one, Brittany, is what is the best decision you've ever made? Um, so in thinking about this, I think it's, um, it's really hard to number it down to one decision, but I think listening to my gut, whenever I listen to my gut is when I make the best decisions. Um, and yeah, deciding to not have uh, regrets, I think deciding that I wanna view my life experiences uh, in the best way possible, even if they're not always great. 
I love that. So question number two is what is your anti-motto? Or in other words, what do you think is the worst advice that you could give someone? (laughs) I think the worst advice I could give someone is to only time travel in one of those four realms uh, to fully only be focused on, uh, yeah, probably in our world right now, in our, yeah, capitalist society, it would be fully invest in a career and not have any sort of life outside of that. Yeah, it's so important to be well-rounded. So, okay, Brittany. So the last question is, what is one rule that you would want every person in the world to follow? This one is much easier. I would want everyone to be compassionate to the best of their ability. And so that means uh, perspective taking, it means kindness and it means empathy. So it means being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, feel what they're feeling and trying to help reduce their suffering. So that applies to yourself and that applies to everyone else. too. I love that so much, Brittany. You are exemplary at doing that, not just in your own life, but in encouraging it in so many others. And that is why I think you are just truly inspirational. So I want to say thank you. (laughs) I just want to say thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today, Brittany. Um, Do you have any last words you want to say to our audience or any way that you would like people to get in touch with you? We're going to have some slides at the end with your contact info, but if there's anything else you'd like to say now is your time. Yes. One thing I forgot. Um, This is really helpful in terms of hope and hopelessness. Um, is to practice gratitude. I found that that is so helpful. So if I'm feeling hopeless, I think about um, the things that I'm grateful for. And then when I'm envisioning what kind of future I want to, I think about the things that I'm grateful for now and what I want more of, um, what I want to cultivate and welcome in. So that is something I forgot to say. And then for people getting in touch with me, yeah, uh, let's see. I can give you more info for the slides, but my email is brittany.l.alexander asu.edu. Wonderful. All right, everyone. That was Brittany Alexander. So thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. Good job, you guys. Perfect. Hey, Shelly. That was awesome. Such a good podcast host. Oh my gosh. Thank you. You guys did so good. Thank you. So let me let me hit the stop recording.